0: This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor, wherever Paul. Paul, how are you doing? Doing good, wherever I am. I don't know where I am, but I'm doing good. (laughs) And we're also here, supposing that, Simon Thomas. Simon, (laughs) we're so happy to have you as a guest today. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I, I think most of our listeners probably already know who you are. Uh, both as a podcaster yourself of tea and books, as a guest on Backlisted Pod um, a while back, which was a really fun episode to listen to, your expertise shined through. But I do want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and and tell anybody who who hasn't had the pleasure yet of meeting you, and hopefully, uh, you know they'll 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 get to know you in your various other places online um but i if they are meeting you through this podcast then all
1: the better for us this is a great pleasure (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much yeah so uh i entered the book internet i guess with the with my blog stuckinabook.com that is still going and then yeah as you say as you say a tea or books with rachel has been going since 2015 now i think so um Hmm. And when people ask me to describe what sort of books I'm into, I, I usually say the sort of thing that Housewives read in the 1930s. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love that you,
0: you gave a recommendation not too long ago for us. I think listeners probably, we, we've we read your, your thoughts on, say, Jane Austen, um, mm-hmm. which were great. And I think on Comfort Reads, you mentioned, you know, just why it is that you relate so much to Housewives of the 1930s. Maybe best left for another conversation. Or something, <laughs> yeah, me, something me, like that.
1: Me and my therapist. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've, I've I've never really established why it is, but um, I just I try not to delve too deeply into my own psyche. <laughs> well, but you've introduced me to so many of those mm-hmm.
0: um, that I have loved. So certainly, I'm I'm grateful for that. Do you have maybe for listeners just to give them a taste? What are two or three that you would just pop off? top of your head recommend as these are some
1: of my kinds of books. Sure. Um, Well, I always start with Miss Hargreaves by Frank Baker. And if I hadn't shut him in the kitchen, my cat Hargreaves would be climbing on the table now. He's a boy, but he is named after her, which is a a novel from 1940 uh, about a man who invents this elderly lady to get out of an awkward conversation. And he makes up details like she always carries a hip bath everywhere and a half, and she's got a cockatoo and a, and a, a small dog. And he and his friend Henry, as a joke, write a letter Uh, inviting her to come and stay at the hotel that they've pretended she's staying at. And she turns up on the train exactly as they've created her. So it's it's sort of a a Frankenstein um, story, I guess. Uh, That's (laughs) a fun one. Uh, For the Housewives in 1930, obviously, the one that I mentioned, I think, in that Comfort Reads uh, um, mention was uh, Diary of a Provincial Lady by E.M. Delafield. And it's got three sequels as well, which is Uh, I guess the Bridget Jones of of the 1930s she's a a housewife and mother in Devon Um, and it's yeah just the diary is very self-deprecating very very funny uh, very easy to read and has been in print ever since it came out which is not true of most of the books that that I would (laughs) recommend to people Um, and well i'll take I'll pick a third of uh ooh, I'm just looking around the room now to see but, or, <laughs> uh one that i know that you i think you guys enjoy uh barbara commons uh i always keen that people try her and I always recommend who was changed and who was dead as my favorite of mm. of the ones uh set during um a flood and also a mass poisoning in a small village that in fact my best friend grew up in that village so i've visited the village many times and have looked at her house but not quite got the courage to, to knock on the door and oh, see cool. who currently lives there and has my favorite opening line of every any book of the ducks swam through the drawing room windows
2: that's one i haven't yet read of hers but i really need to and and yeah I was going to say, that's one of the dangers of, of reading your recommendations is there so, some of them are so hard to find.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's nice that they are gradually, you know, some of the ones I've mentioned have gradually come into print. As, mm-hmm. as you guys know, I have the, the privilege of being a series consultant for the British Library Women Writers Series. And so sometimes I can be <laughs> the, the voice mm-hmm. that calls them back into print. And it certainly makes them easier to recommend to people if I've, if I've managed to persuade the British Library that they want to reprint them.
0: I think that's awesome. I'm, I I was going to mention that, that you have a little more persuasive power than the rest of us in terms of <laughs> if you like a book that's not in print, you might be able to to bring it back. Um, I think that's awesome. And and you often will post things on Instagram um, that show the books that you're, you know, first off that you're finding at say, secondhand stores or, or bookshops, or that you are bringing into the, um, British women writers um, series, whether maybe maybe not always ones you particularly have brought in, but that they're mm, publishing. Mm. So it's just a great resource for anybody, but also just a delight. Simon, um, I don't know when we first met online, but it's always been such a yeah, pleasure. A long time ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you're one of our friends. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so we are here today specifically to revisit an old topic, but in a new twist. Um, several episodes ago, we did our books about books episode, but we focused it on nonfiction books. Paul and I, and we did that on purpose because we did want to come back and do one that was focused on fiction books about books. Whether I guess the books that we're going to be, you know, that, that are referenced are fictional themselves too, or uh, maybe about real books, who knows? But um, we're we're talking specifically about fiction today, and Simon you were the one who you know when i kind of said hey what what would you like to talk about i think this was um what you brought up very first was uh, revisiting this and going at it from the fiction angle um i wanted to kind of hear your your thoughts on that and maybe why why it appeals to you
1: yeah absolutely so i'd i'd listen to your episode about Book, non-fiction books about books which is also a, a genre that i love and i think in that one you mentioned that you were going to revisit with fiction so i was just very very keen to get there before somebody else did um, <laughs> and yeah i i guess partly it's um my love of or our love of, of books permeates to it like loving it as a topic as well as <laughs> as a thing mm-hmm. to have to have uh, particularly I don't think any of the ones I've chosen today are, but particularly books about bookshops or about libraries or um, people, you know, people surrounded by books in some way or other, always just a wonderful place to dive into. Uh, and if an author is writing about an author, then it also reveals a lot about their, the way they work, the way they think about the process of writing, um, whether they're trying to be autobiographical or not. I think it's um, it's always just fascinating seeing someone writing about their own craft, I guess. Yeah. Why do you guys like it?
0: Oh, I think for some of those same reasons that you just brought up, books are so pleasurable. And my own experience with having like a book that becomes a part of me mm. in a way or part of maybe even who I am. Um, and some of these books, I think, go there and unlock that uh, aspect of my life in ways that just a simple, you know, a simple book, <laughs> another <laughs> kind of book, uh, doesn't necessarily do. And so they're, they're unique. Um, uh, but so fun. And I think they capture often that joy or that mystery or that sense of wonder and adventure or promise of a book. Um, it's like you have a book and then within it, a book that's even, you know, <laughs> you've got the, all that promise of a book and then you, it, it, also holds those other aspects to it within it it's like a little chinese doll i guess there's all these layers to to having books about books and having books be a, a primary part about it and i think too so often
2: you know just by the nature of talking about books you're drawn to those types of lives that we talk about so much on this podcast that are kind of the quiet lives or the people who are mm-hmm. sitting there thinking about things and writing and doing things that you know already appeals to me so i think that's definitely one of the draws for me is just the types of people who are highlighted in books about books. And then I was thinking about it too, like growing up, I think there are certain books, at least for me, that kind of helped build my love of reading. And often so many of those involved characters who were big readers, you know, Matilda for Roald Dahl mm. or something like that, where, you know, as a kid, you see these people who love books and they escape or they find all this pleasure in books. And so I think that has a big part of it for me is just
0: it was formative to me as I was young. So, so that's what we'll be talking about, and we'll get back to that in general. But before we go too far into, into this subject and start talking about specific examples and whatnot, um, Paul, what have you been reading? Yeah, I have
2: been reading a book called Jawbone by Monica Ojeda, and it's out from Coffeehouse Press. And I was going to get the translator, and I forgot. Uh, translated by Sarah Booker. So... You guys can see the cover. Actually, I think, didn't you say, Trevor, that you actually got a copy in the Mm -hmm. mail recently? Yeah. So it's a really, I'm about halfway through. It's a really interesting book. I don't know if it's going to be for Simon. I'll just say that right off (laughs) Um, (laughs) It tells the story of a group of girls who attend the Delta Bilingual Academy. And so there's two central characters named Fernand and Annalise. And this group of girls meets regularly, and they start to kind of join into these uh, increasingly dangerous rituals that are kind of led by uh, Anna Lee. She's kind of the, I guess, the ringleader of the group. And so they dare each other or they start doing all these things. And, um, But the interesting thing is it, it's one of those books that drops you right in. So it kicks off with Fernanda is held hostage in a deserted cabin and she's bound to the floor. And they just kind of drop you straight in design. <laughs> told you, Simon. <laughs> it's grimacing here. Yes. Um, so, yeah, the, the author does not mess around. You are immediately dropped into it. But um, it's, it's really interesting. It's kind of, you know, peppered with lots of pop references and slang because you're dealing with these, you know, teenage girls. And it mixed in a term that I didn't actually know anything about, which is creepy pastas. Did you guys know that term?
1: I've I've no. seen it, on, but I don't really understand it.
2: Yeah, I guess it's it's kind of a catch-all term for any horror content that's posted on the internet. And the example I kept seeing come up was the Slender Man.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, that oh. whole
2: that whole deal. So anyway, it, it is kind of in that that vein of of this creepy, like it's modern but has kind of that creepy internet horror feeling to it. So you know, it's still early, um, but so far I'm very intrigued. I'll just read a real short passage here. Um, this is her. Plug your ear, Simon. She's (laughs) stuck in the cabin. It says, The light washed out the inside of the cabin. Two cabinets, a table, a revolver, two chairs, a stove, and a stone countertop. There was something sinister in the transparent whiteness that lit the semi-empty space, and she could see that it was broad and deep, like the inside of a white whale must be. Miss Clara had made them read the chapter, The Whiteness of the Whale, from Moby Dick, and though she remembered little of its content, she had a clear Mm -hmm. sense of the meaning, there was something unnameable and unsettling in whiteness. So just a little snippet. But like I said, I'm about halfway through. I Honestly, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I think of it. But it's, if nothing else, it's very intriguing and, and it's kind of a page turner. So yeah, I'll report back. But I like it so far.
0: And it refers to one of the best chapters of mm-hmm. Moby Dick and uh, that still haunts me myself. <laughs> I know. It made me want to read it again. That might be something I need <laughs> yeah. to do later this year. How about how about you, Simon? Um, do you want to bring us back from the
1: creepy <laughs> pasta? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm reading probably what, the opposite of that book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and only started it this morning. Uh, the Scent of Water by Elizabeth Googe from from the early 1960s, but uh, with a sort of sensibility of rather earlier. Uh, I did a list on my blog the other day of, of 10 authors that I'd never read and hmm. intended to. And Elizabeth Gooch is on that list. I I subsequently remembered that I had actually read a book by Elizabeth Gooch, but there are enough people in the comments recommending that I that I do read something by her that I took this one off my shelf, and it's um it's about uh, a woman who's just retired, aged fifty, because apparently you could do that in nineteen sixty something, <laughs> uh, and has inherited uh, a house in the in the in the countryside from a sort of distant relative whom she only met once when she was about eight uh and she's lived, she lives in london she's not sure if she can cope with moving to from from the big city to a, a tiny village uh but obviously she does because otherwise <laughs> the novel would not exist um and so yeah in the early scenes i've just got to her <clears throat> moving in finding it very beautiful meeting the local her, her new maid and the gardener and the local people and it seems like it's going to be uh, very gentle and lovely. <laughs> exactly. So she's also in in a, in a house in the middle of nowhere, but rather happier. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd pick so, that one. Yeah. <laughs> As she describes the room, it's a little more pleasant. There's exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's also falling apart and sort of and maybe oh. has has mice, but you, know, but in in a sort of fun rural way. <laughs> So they're nice mice, like in yeah. Cinderella. <laughs> I'll for I'll for now, anyway. Yeah. we've not had the first midnight yet, so maybe they will turn into <laughs> man servants
0: or something. <laughs> oh, <clears throat> well. So I am reading. Uh, speaking of Coffee House Press, um, uh, ah. Mark Haber's uh, forthcoming novel, Saint Sebastian's Abyss which is really good and I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, Paul, I know you're a fan of Reinhardt's garden mm-hmm. and I haven't read that yet, but I'm definitely on top of that now because yeah. I, i I really am enjoying, um, St. Sebastian's abyss. The way this is written, it's like little, almost rants almost it's, I mean, think of Thomas Bernhardt a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, there are two former best friends who are both art critics and they both were, um, you know, the the only thing they ever wrote about or cared about, it seems to be is this painting, St. Sebastian's abyss by a Dutch Renaissance painter, count Hugo Beckenbauer. Um, All of that's fictional speaking of, Oh, this could be another topic books about art (laughs) or something like that. I would love that. So there's a lot of talk about this, um, this painting in the book, but what's going on is, is one of them, has decided that he is going to die in Berlin, which is where this Dutch painter died because all the best minds are buried in Berlin. He's going to be part of it. Um, and so he he writes to his friend, a uh, uh, in quotes, relatively short email that when his friend prints it out is uh, nine pages long. And his friend <laughs> is flying across the Atlantic to go and, and, you know, be with this estranged friend. Now they've had a falling out and, I don't entirely know why, but certainly these are prickly personalities. I can get it just by, you know, <laughs> some of the insights. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't be friends for very long either. But but anyway, both of them very um, uh, knowledgeable about this art. And there are little mysteries about it in, in and of itself that uh, I'm enjoying it very much. And they're told in these very short chapters. It's almost like as the guy is flying across, he just has these little bursts of of memories or of... <clears throat> of anger, you know, whatever he might be feeling in the moment, and it's it's pretty fun. And so I thought I would just give you a little bit of a taste of it. This is from chapter 11, which is on page 13, so you know how how quick these are moving. Wow. Um, Schmidt, which is his friend's name. Schmidt hated anything new or modern, art especially. I was from the United States, a relatively new country, said Schmidt. Schmidt was from Austria which he called an ancient country whenever Schmidt and I argued invariably about art and more specifically about Saint Sebastian's abyss he would resort to calling the united states a second-rate nation and explain that having been born and raised in the united states unequivocally unequivocally a second-rate nation a lethargic infant of a society a babbling baby of a drive-through culture my opinions could only be infantile too Indulgent and crass and, like the United States, requiring centuries, perhaps epics, to mature. (laughs) Simon, is that how you feel coming to to (laughs) talk with uh, Paul and me today?
1: (laughs) Babbling babies? It's like I read it myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We appreciate you um, bringing bringing so much to us. (laughs) Anyway, it is a funny book um, and... And just really interesting. And another topic, I really do love books about paintings, or books about mm-hmm. art, um, some of those mysteries. Uh, Michael Fran's Headlong, for example, is just so much fun to me. Um, and it, it, I don't know, that that kind of stuff intrigues me. You know, bring up a good heist. I like that kind of stuff. <laughs> but it can be just as, I think it also is very much about the, the art and the history of the art that someone might be trying to steal, you know, that, that intrigues me, so... Yeah, Yeah. that sounds really good. Mark, you know, like you said, I'm a big fan of Reinhardt's garden.
2: So I actually have through Brazos books, there's a link if anybody's interested, you can get a signed copy of that his upcoming book um, through through that bookstore. So I would definitely suggest that as an option for people. But also, if you ever need any Spanish language recommendations, man, (laughs) Mark, he has filled my bookshelves with so many good books. He's got really good taste. So
0: And this kind of feels like some of those great novels that I think he would recommend. You know, Mm -hmm. he, there's a bit of a rhythm to it that feels, there's a lot of um, kind of a repetition, an an insistence that we don't often have, I think in English, but that comes out in some of these, um, you know, Spanish novels and and Mm -hmm. definitely St. Sebastian's Abyss has that, that mind that's a little bit perturbed and, just has to kind of keep on angrily, you know, circling around certain things. It's, it's, it's a good one. Nice. All right. Well, Paul, will you drop that in the show notes then the, the link to be able Absolutely. to pick up Mark's book signed? So yeah, we'll do. <clears throat>
1: All
0: right. Well, similar to the art, you know, the art in this book, let's get back to our topic at hand then. And, uh, I'll just say, I love it when a book simply shows up in another book. I mean, it can be very simple. Um, like I remember going back to I can't remember if it was kindergarten or first grade, reading uh, well the teacher was reading banicula to us. And <clears throat> Simon, is that I'm looking is very that blank? Book that, <laughs> I don't know that, what no, what is this? So this is a <laughs> This is a book about a, a vampire bunny. <laughs> sure. Well,
1: oh, now you say it.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was definitely very popular in the 80s among children. Um, and they probably, well, it was a husband and wife who wrote it. And she unfortunately died either shortly after it was published or maybe even shortly before. But he carried on, uh, Dean Howells, I think, he carried on the series. And I loved him as a kid. Loved him. But they're fun, you know. It's about this these children who have a bunny rabbit, and they're or, and um, and their other pets. So you might like this because <laughs> you can imagine Hargraves and what what not. But there's a cat and a dog who are convinced that the new rabbit is a vampire, <laughs> and and it will go and um, and raid the pantry and suck all of the juice out of like the carrots at night. So. <laughs> Wow. Okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh,
1: back to why I'm bringing this up even. In it's that it's book, explaining a lot oh, about a generation of Americans to me, I think. Yes, <laughs> yes.
0: You can now know where we're coming from. <laughs> anyway, I still remember that one of the children of the family um, was reading every night. He'd read a, a chapter of Treasure Island and he'd kind of talk about it with his you know, pet in the room or whatever um, just a chapter a night throughout the story. And it brought that, that, you know, it was it was exciting for that child. And I can't quite remember, but I feel like the animals liked to go there too, just because of the atmosphere that it brought about. You know, they weren't like listening or anything. They just, just, there was something pleasant about that time together, reading a book like Treasure Island. Now, as a child, I had not read Treasure Island, but I, I was so excited for the day to be able to read it. And I wanted to read it just like this kid did, you know, one mm-hmm. chapter a night. I, I looked forward when I, when we had our first our first um, uh, son, you know, I was excited to read Treasure Island to him. You know, in a similar way, and we did that. And so there was something special about finding books and books even back then, and the the fun of discovering something and that and conveying that pleasure of reading, even in this very, you know, brilliant, uh, masterful. Book about a vampire bunny um, <laughs> that needs to needs to be bigger in the UK apparently. <laughs> <laughs> that is what we're missing, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so. So, anyway, and, and the book didn't even play a big part in the, the story. It was just something about the texture that that really you know appealed to me, and that's one of my first memories of of finding a book in in a book, and when that's the part I walk away with, even as a you know a very young child, I think that was. Mm-hmm you know, I knew who I was back then, even. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mentioned Matilda earlier, just same kind of experience.
2: Mm -hmm. But I, when I was looking at some books online for this this episode, there's actually reading lists that are all the books that Matilda reads from the library, you know, like, for example, and it's all the classics and everything. So that whole idea, like you said, of even if you're not old enough or, or you're not yet ready to read some of those, it gets it on your radar as a kid. And it just makes you realize how exciting it could be. It's literature isn't scary. It's something to be kind of you know, excited mm-hmm. about and look forward to. I really like that
1: too. Did you guys read Enid Blyton? I don't know how much she was across the pond. No, uh, no. So very prolific, uh, and I think now quite out of fashion. But I, I used to love. I basically read nothing but Enid Blyton for about four years in my childhood, and she had a series called the Famous Five series, five people, five children going on adventures, and another series called the Secret Seven. You can see the trend going here. Um, And I remember when I was about nine, my mind being completely blown that one of the children in The Secret Seven was reading a famous five book. And this is, is, I guess, was my introduction to, you know, postmodern intertextuality or something. But I was just thinking, it's just brilliant that she's managed, you know, she's broken that fourth wall somehow. Uh, That that happens in *Manicula* too. It's a brilliant (laughs) intertextual. Uh, Yeah, I think I read a PhD thesis on it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry to interrupt you there, Simon. Oh no, I was just
1: going to say I also loved *Matilda*, and I think uh, I think most bookish children. I mean, I I certainly didn't have a family like like hers. My parents were also bookish people and encouraged reading, but it's still (laughs) when when you're more of a reader than any of your other friends and we want to spend time inside with books when they want to go outside. I think any, anyone like that sees a kindred spirit in, in Matilda. For sure.
2: Yeah. It's almost like reading is rebellion a little bit, like, you know, a little mm-hmm. insight into like the banned books idea of, you know, reading doesn't have to always be this safe nerdy thing. It can also be like <laughs> this, you know, exciting adventure, or like I said, an act of rebellion. I, I like that too.
0: Well, so what are, I think there are so many ways this can appeal to us. I mean, there is just the simple, you know, kindred spirit, um, I say simple, I don't quite mean it like that, um, but there's the finding of a kindred spirit. Uh, but Paul, I think you have read Roberto Polano's 2666. Mm-hmm. Um, Simon, do you have any familiarity with with that one? I'm afraid so, not, no. It's, I mean, it's a massive, big, weird book, but the very first part is called The Book About the Critics. And it's this group of critics. I mean, honestly, it's kind of like St. Sebastian's Abyss, you know, kind of there's that mm-hmm. Spanish language um, connection again. But these critics have an author that they are obsessed with and that they are trying to understand more about. And throughout the book, they'll just start talking about these fictional books that this in this author's oeuvre that are, you know, and it's just the titles. It's just, again, the the sense of, of. Of connectiveness, and that they have got this this whole other world within within the book I'm reading. There's this whole other world of his catalog of books, and Bolano did that a few times. He's got like um, Nazi literature in the Americas, which is just a bunch of fictional, bo- you know, it's it's a catalog of books that don't exist in our world and authors that don't exist in our world. But it's talking about that kind of the. Um, uh, authoritarianism you know it's it's an interesting book but it's all about these books it's like it's like almost like a a reading catalog um Mm. or or something like that and i don't know what it is about that kind of stuff either that intrigues me i mean you'd think that would be excess you know exceedingly boring or pointless (laughs) why read a, a book catalog about books that don't exist but it is something about that opening up. There's a big imagination there. I mean, I don't know any any other thoughts on on that or other reasons that you enjoy when a book shows up in your you know in a fictional book you're reading. I mean, I do like some of the same aspects that
2: we've talked about with our podcast or with Simon's podcast, where you have a piece of paper and a pencil right there, and you're jotting down either books that they bring up that you've been meaning to read or that you've never even heard of. A couple of the mm-hmm. books that I'm going to talk about later today are really good and dangerous about that because they just add so much to your tbr (laughs) pile. so i I love that aspect of it too just yeah it seems like no matter how much you read and talk about literature there's always these books out there you're like either how have i not read this yet or i've never even heard of that you know so i like that part of that
1: i did once go through the provincial lady books that i mentioned earlier and writing down all the books that she mentions there and some of them you know that oliver twist or something obviously not obscure but then there were others um she mentions *The Priory* ed- by Dorothy Whipple that I then went and read and really enjoyed, and various other things that some of which didn't really have much of an audience after when they appeared in her book, but but they're sort of they're um, I don't know it crystallized as as a reading taste for forever that you can go and go and do the French Lady reading diet or something.
0: That's <laughs> a lot of fun. So when I was putting, we are going to be doing our our lists here in a second, you know, of three of our favorite books about books that we want to talk about. And this was hard when I was putting my list together. I probably had a list. This might've been my biggest list we've ever done, Paul, <laughs> really? um, that I had to whittle it away for down. I mean, I have my three and I'm happy with them, but if I'm just counting here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 more that are to potential honorable mentions, <laughs> um, several that I wouldn't necessarily put on my list, but I thought, you know, I thought about, um, And maybe we can talk about some of them. We we know we don't have any idea what's on each other's lists, but we also, I I also know that none of them have like the name of the rose. I don't think either of you brought the name of the rose up on, Mm. on yours. Um, that's another, you know, example of a book about a book. It's, it's this mystery within it. It's, it's a, it's, this book takes place in an old, um, English or is it English? Maybe it's probably Italian or something. Italian, anyway, yeah, probably an Italian monastery. Um, I just think of all monasteries as English my, my reading. <laughs> they've got, they've but, got a lot more of them in Italy than we have. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I thought that, but anyway, an, an old um, monastery, medieval monastery, and they are copying books. You know, they're they're these are the monks who are writing down books, and there's a lot of weird things going on there. It's a bit of a messed up. Um, society. There's a mystery and a murder. You know, there's all this going on, but, but also at the heart of this story is um, they have a copy of Aristotle's book about comedy. Um, whereas we don't have that one. It doesn't exist anymore. We know he wrote these books, um, but they don't exist anymore. So there's this hidden book there. You know, he's got a book about tragedy. He's got a book about comedy and they, they have the, the one, you know, they have both and yet they're trying to hide it and make sure it doesn't come out. And I love that kind of speculation too, about, um, lost books, books we know exist, or, you know, I would love it someday if someone just cracked open a cave and inside were the other pieces to the, the epic poems by Homer, you know, the, the (laughs) other bits of this, uh, trojan war epic because it wasn't just the iliad and the odyssey there were there were others that he wrote there are all kinds of um ancient plays that that were written that we know about because in the records like oh this play won the best play of the year award and (laughs) then but it doesn't exist anymore Mm -hmm. and i think it would be great to find those and so i do love it when things like that pop up into books Mm -hmm. and the name of the rose is a good one for that um just a
2: little uh, aside about mm-hmm. uh, umberto echo i don't know if i said his name right but the author of the name of the rose if you ever get a chance and maybe i can drop this into the show notes too there's a video of him walking through his personal
1: library
0: oh Oh, I've seen that
1: oh it's wonderful yeah yeah miles and miles isn't it yeah yeah it's amazing
2: oh I could just watch that on loop for the rest of my life (laughs) and he seems to know where everything is he's just yeah I know yeah because he walks like you said for like it seems like a mile and then all of a sudden he goes right to this one shelf yeah doesn't even like pause and he just grabs the book he was looking for
1: (laughs) I'm gonna veer into nonfiction for a second I'm gonna break the rules but uh just because you mentioned that um there's a great book by Jacques Bonnet called uh The Phantoms on the Bookshelves just translated mm. from French by somebody. Um, and it's basically about people who own tens of thousands of books. And mm. he's, he is one of those people. Uh, and he's much less organized than, and echo than he is. He was saying it's just always easier to buy another, another copy than to try and find it. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like valid reasoning to me. <laughs>
0: well, and Simon, I remember we we did a podcast together a while back. and mm. And you taught me a valuable lesson. There's a difference between acquiring books to read, and acquiring books because you love that book. I, you didn't say it quite like that, but it was basically the lesson was, um, it's okay, it's okay, right? This the sense that you have to read every book that you own, or have to buy a book and read it immediately. That's its own thing. You you may have that, but there's also another part to this, which is, a, you know, collecting and and having having books that you love on the shelf because you love
1: books <laughs> yeah i remember you you i heard you quoting that in any episode and i hadn't remembered saying it but i was very glad i i did because it is a, I, I think yeah i think buying books and reading books are entirely separate pleasures and they just happen to overlap so <laughs> that's how yeah. you
0: put it yeah. that's a better yeah. you know that's a better summation of how you put it like um, yes exactly i'm not it sure didn't. that
2: your podcast partner rachel necessarily <laughs> oh. agrees with you on that Oh, she's such a,
1: such a color of books. Yeah, although uh, she, we did do an episode where she came and looked at my bookshelves, and she did reluctantly agree that they weren't as over overwhelming as she, she thought they might be.
0: <laughs> you don't have the ten thousand books in, uh, in the labyrinth. You're not That's quite going sadly, to the whole no. Borges. Uh, realm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, not yet. One day. Uh, to go much sort of lower brow than than an echo and Aristotle. Uh, they're not real books I guess but I always love when Agatha Christie writes um with Ariadne Oliver so Ariadne, Ariadne Oliver is a friend of Elke Poirier who appears in quite a few of the books and she is a very thinly veiled version of Agatha Christie herself she has I think it's a Finnish <laughs> detective rather than a Belgian one she's she has all these um she gives away plot things of, of these fake books or the difficulty of of making a detective from a country, his culture, you know, nothing about and all that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I really enjoy it when it's authors um, sort of have, have, have a bit of fun at themselves, I guess, through the, through the fake books and fake authors they include.
0: I'll have a little bit of that in my in my list. Not of Agatha Christie. I try not to bring up Agatha Christie because I don't think Paul knows who that is. <laughs> <laughs> Even despite all the bullying. Come on, Paul. <laughs> I know. I'm digging in my heels every time you mention it. No. I'm trying to figure out if bringing it up like this gets Paul closer to reading it or further and further away. <laughs>
2: closer for sure, closer. I'm not as much of a rebel as I pretend to be. <laughs>
0: You know, sometimes I, I like books that also talk about the trouble of books, the potential trouble of books. I mean, mm. I'm not someone who believes in the trouble of books quite the way these are, but I'm thinking of Penelope Fitzgerald's uh, The Bookshop, oh. which is a lovely book and so interesting and, and great to read. It's about a bookshop. We've brought it up before because we've talked about bookshops on the podcast. But an aspect of this is that when she tries to go and stock her shelves with uh, Lolita, and causes an uproar in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's it's fun to have this fictional book that brings in that real issue of sometimes people don't want you reading um, what they don't want to read, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and think it's their their place to to cause an uproar and the trouble that 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 books can can bring about in within a community or within you know that there is that there is that transformative quality to a book, and some people don't want that to affect them or the people that they love or the people they live nearby or the people they imagine are demons, you know, I, <laughs> there's right. just, uh, and, and thinking of Penelope Fitzgerald's The Bookshop, that was definitely one that I could have, um, I could have brought up in my, in my list, but I left it off as a, as a mention here to kind of keep on going with different ways that, that books show up Within fictional books, yeah,
1: it was very close to being on my list. It got bumped mm-hmm. in the end, but I, th- and there are a few others which are either fully or, or partly about bookshops that I that I mm-hmm. almost included. Um, I love uh, "Keep the Aspidistra Flying" by George Orwell, mm-hmm. which has which starts with this wonderful scene in a bookshop where it goes through lots of uh, writers contemporary to when it was written, which I think is the f- late forties, maybe or somewhere around then. Um, a lot of sort of names that don't mean anything to us now, but at that time anyone reading them it was like um as sort of shorthand for where they fell in intellectual and social classes uh and Riman steps by arnold Bennett from a from a couple of mm-hmm. decades before that as well There's this is was wonderful um antiquarian bookshop in in there and I guess with both of them. The bookshop was maybe too peripheral for me to, <laughs> to put it on my list of three, <laughs> but I did want to mention that. Um and then a completely different twist on a bookshop, uh Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. Have you guys read that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um I'm trying to think when he wrote it. I can't remember. Uh, um American novel from the first half of the 20th century, I think, where uh the gentleman sells a donkey carrying sort of carrying a bookshop to a lady who decides to leave her maybe husband, maybe brother, whoever, whichever dominant male she's living with at the beginning of the book, she she rebels and just travels around with a, with a donkey that's carrying some bookcases and starts selling books around the country. It's really oh, wow. wonderful work. Huh.
2: That sounds great. That reminds me, I've seen, I don't remember where it is, somewhere, I believe in South America, there's been photos of somebody who travels over the mountains and it's basically like a bookmobile, but it's on a burrow and he has <laughs> boxes Amazing. of books on either side and he delivers them to all the different children in the villages, so. Yeah, very
1: similar. Yeah, yeah. In
2: theory, that's my dream job, I guess, maybe.
0: <laughs> Stop for lunch and read for a little
2: exactly. while. Exactly. I'm sure it's not all as idyllic as it seems like, but it sounds kind of nice.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, what about books where the fiction, you know, the fictional book that is the subject in it, the author actually tries to like put passages from it inside of it. I'm thinking of like Possession by A.S. Byatt, Mm -hmm. where you've got these, again, critics or scholars um, looking back 150 years to these other authors and their letters and things like that to each other and and their poetry. And A.S. Byatt, the author here, actually has pretty lengthy passages of this poetry that she has made up for this story. And I think it's pretty brilliant. I mean, there's also... Um, Italo Calvino's "If on a Winter's Night a Traveler," which about yeah, a bunch of false starts. Mm-hmm. Um, Misery, you know, by Stephen King, has mm-hmm. the actual chapters from the book he's writing for his psychotic fan,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: which is kind of fun. Um, even Cloud Atlas has these little passages from these other books, or you can almost look at it as each book is within this other books (laughs) you know you're reading the book itself is is another book in this universe and um you know i think things like that are pretty fun too when you see an author really you know playing with their own style in order to bring in another fictional work within their work
2: yeah i like that too and i know people roll their eyes at J.R. tolkien when he goes off on some of his poetry or songs but i have a soft spot for him and i've always enjoyed those parts where it's like Mm -hmm. you know he created entire languages, and entire poems and entire backstories like any author who puts in the work and, and actually has that much love for their work to, to do that automatically. You know, I may not always care for it, but I, I personally kind of respect that and like I enjoy it.
1: I'm one of those people who read Possession and skipped the poetry, I'm afraid. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think I really enjoy it if it's uh, maybe spoofing, like some- when Woodhouse puts in a bit of oh, an no. author's thing, or even in Orlando, where we get bits of of um, the poem that uh, Wolf is mocking Peter Seifel West of the Land, uh, sort of <laughs> spoofing it. Um, that sort of stuff I like, but I think when they're being serious, <laughs> I'm just like, well, I'll just write a different book if you want to try that. <laughs> <laughs> but Italo That's Calvino is
2: is a very good example. I mean, I was going to bring up if on a winter's night a traveler because it is it, it's kind of a blend of the two. I mean, he he takes mm. it fairly fairly seriously, but there's definitely you know oh, yeah. a little he's wink he's, wink to the reader. He's playing and he's, a lot too, for he sure. Is. Yeah,
1: I love that book. <clears throat> I have started it but I never I didn't get very far but I will go back to it. <laughs>
2: well you don't have to get very far before it switches to another book. Yeah, so. no, yeah, <laughs> very
1: right. quickly. I was I think it was not really <clears throat> I think I was just very confused <laughs> so I thought another right. day <laughs> I'll go back. No.
0: Yeah, With you, Calvino you you have to be in the mood I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well in every every few chapters you I mean well, I guess every chapter you feel like you're starting it again. Um, mm, mm, which is which is part of the fun and the frustration of it. You <laughs> yeah, that's, you're always that's... disoriented.
2: I never thought about that. That's probably my, my wife's nightmare book because she hates starting books. Like she'll usually, mm-hmm. when she's getting near the end of another book, she will start another one like at the same time so that she doesn't have to have that in-between period where you're warming up. She just does not enjoy that. <laughs> On the other hand, I really like it. I feel like looking at my bookshelves, I always get pretty excited to pick out the next
0: one, but I'll have to warn her away from that one. <laughs> yeah, no nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, should we start on our, our lists here and get to our three that we're going to recommend? Um, and then uh, when we do this, uh, Simon, we can start with you. Tell us a little bit about how you made your list. How did you whittle it down before you get into naming your first choice?
1: Oh, great question. Um, so I, in some ways, it was just the ones that came to mind first. I thought if they've come to mind first, it's probably for a good reason. Uh, as, as my list got longer, I thought I'd take out the Americans, because I thought you guys might have that covered. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't actually taken them all out. There is one American left in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, I, I, in the end, I decided to go entirely with books featuring authors, some of them real, some of them not real. I thought mm-hmm. I needed to, to limit it a bit myself <laughs> to, to a diff, like, sl- narrower definition than, than we're going for in general, because otherwise, yeah, it would have just been too vast and so many great examples that would have been mm. too difficult. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, all right. Well, what do? You, what's your? What have you got? What's your first one?
1: Well, I thought I won't tell you what it is straight away, but if I may, I'll just read the beginning and see if oh, you yeah. can tell me which way. <laughs> I think you, you may want well to know what it is. And if you don't know what it is, you'll know who it's about. So I'll just read the first few lines. She hurries from the house, wearing a coat too heavy for the weather. It is 1941. Another war has begun. She has left a note for Leonard and another mm-hmm. for Vanessa. She walks purposely toward the river, certain of what she'll do, but even now she is almost distracted by the sight of the downs, the church, and a scattering of sheep, incandescent, tinged with a faint hint of sulfur, grazing under a darkening sky.
0: Hmm. Yep, I I think I'm on it. (laughs) I think I am, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, either you're gonna be brave enough to but sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think I got it when she's got a coat too heavy. Yeah. Uh, are, are you reading Michael Cunningham's The Hours?
1: I am indeed. Yes, yes. my my solitary American that I've allowed into my three. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, it's a great really, one to add. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm my only living author, in fact. So, very, and a man, all all things that I don't often read. But uh, but mm-hmm. I um I actually saw the film first uh, back when it came out in 2000. And, two or three or whenever it was. And I was, I was I know, 16 or something. So I, I hadn't, um, maybe a bit older, but I hadn't read any Virginia Woolf. I didn't really know anything about her, but I went to go and see the film and that started my love affair with Virginia Woolf. And then mm-hmm. eventually with the novel, I went and read Mrs. Dalloway and then read the novel. Mm-hmm. Started, And I've been in a cycle of doing those three things ever since. Uh, so if anyone not familiar with it, the the hours is in, set in these three different time periods. One of them, Virginia Woolf, is writing Mrs. Dalloway. One of them in 1940s, uh, a woman called Laura, is uh, living a life very much like Mrs. Dalloway's, uh, and in the 1990s, uh, Clarissa... Sorry, I got that wrong. Laura's reading Mrs. Dalloway, and then in 1990s, Clarissa is living a life like Mrs. Dalloway. Mm-hmm. So it's these three different stories of women dealing with the uh, restrictions of their contemporary society. There's Virginia Woolf, obviously... Um, is very mentally unwell in that period but also dealing with having medical decisions made for her by her husband by other men in her life laura's in this unhappy marriage she's married her high school sweetheart and, and can't really escape from the that sort of drudgery but also feels really guilty about it and then clarissa in in some ways lives this much more um i guess free life but still dealing. Uh, with with some restrictions, and has this friend who represents the um, Septimus Harding? Is that his name? I Whatever. think so. Yeah, a uh, character from Mrs. Dalloway uh, who has AIDS. Um, and yeah, I think I love Michael Cunningham in general. I've read nearly everything he's written, but I think this is his masterpiece. I think it's such a brilliant... Um, Way of using that source novel of Mrs. Dalloway without being just too imitative, or, or you know, anyone trying to write with the sh- shadow of Virginia Woolf looming over them is going to going to look worse because she's so brilliant. <laughs> but but he might, I think the way he deals with that uh, mm-hmm. is really clever, and uh, yeah, it's fantastic. I'm I'm assuming you guys m- m- might be familiar with it. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's for a great sure. choice. I, I'm surprised I didn't. It didn't even pop into my mind for this list, but it it is it is a book. I, I probably had a similar experience to you. I first saw the movie, read the book and then realized I got to read everything, you know, by <laughs> Virginia Wolf. And I, and I have been, um, you know, re, re going through that too. And, and yet this one didn't pop into, into mind, even though it should have, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. I couldn't believe that I didn't think of that one.
2: Um, yeah, I, I love that book. And, I think Simon, you and I might have talked about this. Have you read *Specimen Days* by Michael I, Cunningham? I have, yes. Yeah, and I know there's a section of that that m- maybe was a bit troubling to you, where it jumps in the future. But um, I do like in that one he he does some similar things with Walt Whitman. So books about books and books about authors, he definitely has had several where he does that. He's just such a good writer. I've listened to audio versions of his books too, and mm-hmm. I will say, if anybody's ever interested, that's another great way to to listen mm. to them. So. Yeah, yeah i definitely found story. this
1: sort of really intriguing ex- experience reading specimen days partly because it has both historical and uh futuristic fiction which neither of which am, am i thing but also because i'd never read any Walt whitman and didn't really know anything mm-hmm. about him uh mm-hmm. uh i guess i guess he's more read in america than he is here but, yeah, for sure. um and yeah he wasn't at all what i expected so i guess yeah. i guess yeah i felt i felt like i was being um Alienated by many different aspects of the novel, and it is my least favorite of his, but uh, um, but he's still just yeah. The the section set in the contemporary period I loved. It was the bits before <laughs> and after that. Yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, what's what's your first
2: one? My first one is uh Ask the Dust by John Fonte. Um so I don't know if you guys are familiar with this one. It was first published in 1939. And it's set in Los Angeles during the Great Depression era. Um, it's part of a, a series of books known as the Bandini Quartet. And it's because they all feature this character, Arturo Bandini, who I guess is kind of the author's alter ego. That's the impression I get. He's the young Italian-American who uh, has moved from Colorado and he's moved over to Los Angeles and he's has dreams of being a writer. So it kind of captures a lot of that, you know, the you know, Simon, you mentioned that some of yours were about authors specifically. That's definitely what this one is. And it's the the hope and the striving and the struggle of a young author, you know, a starving artist. So, you know, he, he moves to L.A. He's living in this kind of nasty apartment and there's a lot of scenes of him just sitting there like with his typewriter, you know, in this not very nice place and there's noises going on outside. And it just does a really nice job of capturing the American West during this period, I think, L.A. But also like I said, kind of that, you know, it's a little bit romanticized, I suppose, but not really because it's it, it it's not pleasant, but you know, <laughs> that idea of somebody striving for their art and, and in spite of all the obstacles they continue to try, but it's definitely not an optimistic novel. It's <laughs> it's, pre- it's pretty grim. Um, but yeah, a lot of people have described it as like, you know, the greatest novel ever written about Los Angeles and things like that. So, you know, I don't know about all that, but it's, it's really good. And the one thing I will say a little bit of a caveat is, he's often mentioned John Fonte as kind of a predecessor of the beats. And I am not a fan of the beats in general. Like that's just not a style that really appeals to me. And there's little elements of this, you know, kind of a little bit of that macho, like, you know, energy and things like that, that, you know, might rub people the wrong way in this book. But I think in spite of that, it's really worth reading. So I just thought I would quickly read a couple of of short excerpts just to give you an idea of the language. So it says, a day and another day and the day before, and the library with the big boys in the shelves. Old Dreiser, old Mencken, all the boys down there, and I went to see them. Hiya, Dreiser, hiya, Mencken, hiya, hiya. There's a place for me too, and it begins with B in the B shelf. Arturo Bandini. Make way for Arturo Bandini, his slot for his book. And I sat at the table and just looked at the place where my book would be, right there close to Arnold Bennett. Not much to the Arnold Bennett, but I'd be there to sort of bolster up the bees. Old Arturo Bandini, one of the boys until some girl came along, some scent of perfume through the fiction room, some click of high heels to break up the monotony of my fame. So, you know, it's, it's kind of that, I don't know, not everybody might like that style. And, and, you know, I I don't think I would say I love it in general for a lot of the beat books, you know, but um, in this particular instance, it really worked for me and I I like that energy and kind of that, you know, you're, you're dreaming and you're striving. That's where my book will go someday when it's written. I kind of like that part of it. Um, Then there's just one more real quick part that I'll read that gets more into the whole idea of like the reality of trying to write. So he says, but the landlady, the white haired landlady kept writing those notes. She was from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Her husband had died and she was all alone in the world and she didn't trust anybody. She couldn't afford to. She told me so. And she told me I'd have to pay. It was mounting like the national debt. I'd have to pay or leave every cent of it. Five weeks overdue, $20. And if I didn't, she'd hold my trunks. Only I didn't have any trunks. I only had a suitcase and it was cardboard without even a strap because the strap was around my belly, holding up my pants. And that wasn't much of a job because there wasn't much left in my pants. I just got a letter from my agent. I told her my agent in New York, he says, I sold another one. He doesn't say where, but he says it's he's got one sold. So don't worry, Mrs. Hargraves. Oh, there's Hargraves. Don't you, (laughs) don't you fret. I'll have it in a day or so, but she couldn't believe a liar like me. It wasn't really a lie. It was a wish, not a lie. And maybe it wasn't even a wish. Maybe it was a fact. And the only way to find out was watch the mailman, watch him closely, check his mail as he laid it on the desk in the lobby, ask him point blank if he had anything for Bandini. But I didn't have to ask after six months at the hotel. He saw me coming and always nodded yes or no before I asked. No, three million times. Yes, once. So I don't know. Like I said, it, it's kind of the, the youth and, and the desperation, but also that continuing passion in spite of everything that you keep trying. So
1: yeah,
0: I don't know. Have, have either really one of good. you guys. Yeah, it's good.
1: Yeah, I've never heard of it. Hey.
0: I've read "Wait Until Spring," Bandini. Mm-hmm. Um, that's which I believe is the first one, and then I think "Ask it is. the Dust" is the next. And I, I know I have asked the dust. Um, I think I bought them both at the same time. And while I liked "Wait Until Spring," Bandini, I never got quite got back to the the series. And and the thing that's just frustrating is that "Wait Until Spring," Bandini, is a certain size of book. Hmm. And ask the dust is a different size of book, <laughs> and I'm like, this is this is okay on a bookshelf unless they're from the same author, same series, same mm. publisher. What are you guys doing? So no. that just annoyed me, and so <laughs> <That's what> I <laughs> struggle with with Trollope.
2: when I, We've talked about with Trollop how I'd like to start gathering all of his books, but they're all from like different publishers, different <laughs> time periods, different sizes. It's,
1: yeah, yeah, we got to get that together. I'm <laughs> intrigued mean, about the title. What what is, what are we asking the dust? Where does it come yeah, from? Yeah,
2: I actually let's see, I had. They said it comes from, I never know how to pronounce his name. Is it Newt Hampson? Do you know how? K-N-U-T? 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 Oh, Newt? I think they do yeah, the K. 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 Yeah. 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 So it says, Ask the Dust contains thematic similarities to Knut, Knut Hampson's 1890 novel, Hunger. Uh, Fonte was a great admirer. The title Ask the Dust derives from the novel Pan from 1894, in which Lieutenant Glahn tells the story about the girl in the tower. And this is a quote from that novel. It says, the other one he loved like a slave, like a crazed and like a beggar. Why? Ask the dust on the road and the falling leaves. Ask the mysterious god of life, for no one knows such things. So apparently it came from from
1: a Thompson. In some ways, I feel none the wiser, but but I I know. (laughs) Glad I could clear that up for you. (laughs) All right, well,
0: get ready for my first one. Have you guys ever read Inferno by Dan Brown? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just That's kidding. About, about to hang up. <laughs> I, I couldn't even stick with that long enough to see your genuine reaction. What it might be if I if I went far enough that you were like, "He's serious. He is serious." You no, know, I admit I did read Inferno by Dan Brown, um, but it. I did not even, even, even compared to some of the other Dan Brown novels, I thought it was terrible and didn't even (laughs) use the Inferno in fun ways. So no, just kidding. Um, (laughs) However, my first one is still a bit of a cheat. So hopefully because it's not Inferno by Dan Brown, you'll still be okay with, with my cheat. We shall Um, see. (laughs) uh, It is a Cesar Ira novel, novella called Art Forum. And the reason it's a cheat is that Art Forum, while it, it is a thick book, it's a, it's a magazine. It's a magazine that's been going, you know, in subscription and are out in circulation for decades now. And that, but they are thick magazines. Not like a little staple bound. I mean, they they come they're two hundred, 300 pages sometimes. So I thought, no, this this counts. This counts, right? You know, it's it's a it's a book about his obsession with getting Art Forum, particularly in the mail. When it's supposed to come and how, you know, his life revolves around acquiring these, these books, like he'll go to used booksellers and, um, and he will look for their new copies of art form because he doesn't have them all. He's got, and he also doesn't really want to get a subscription because it's fun to find it. You know, it's fun Mm -hmm. to find it out in the wild and and acquire it that way, but also recognizes if he only had a subscription, he'd be okay. Well, he eventually does get a subscription. (laughs) It's so fun because he waits for the mailman to come. Paul, every time you're waiting for like an NYRB (laughs) subscription book to to arrive, I think of art for him. That's funny. So every time he rang my bell or stopped me in the street to give me an envelope, because I walk around the neighborhood almost as much as he does, my heart would beat wildly, and I would believe that the moment had arrived, and because it didn't arrive, that moment was all moments. I continued to receive all kinds of correspondence, and it occurred to me that there was a genius trickster who was transforming the envelope I wanted to receive into another one that contained a bill or an advertisement for a pizzeria. And then this is also the funny part, is that when it comes... It's not necessarily all it promised to be. Like everything you've waited for for a long time, when it becomes real, it loses a large part of its reality. Had had been shedding reality in strips along the tortuous path of desire. Um, but it's a cycle because he's always waiting for the next one to arrive. And and here's here's another part. <laughs> Paul, Paul, this is this is you. You know. <laughs> Going out to the mailbox to look for Mrs. Palfrey back in, in the in winter. All right. The, the title, the chapter title is called Melancholy. Art forum hasn't arrived yet. A state of deep melancholy has taken hold of me. I see the world through a gray veil. Not even the best of jokes can exact a smile from me. I could die right now and I wouldn't notice the difference. <laughs> or maybe I would. It might seem like nothing. After all, nothing horrible has happened to me. But I don't need to compare my problems with those of so many people who have really serious ones. There is, however, always a lack of proportion when it comes to the human soul. Moreover, melancholy as an effect is neither great nor small, important nor insignificant, serious nor frivolous. It's more like nothingness. It's not so much that it doesn't have any attributes as that it dilutes all of them in an impenetrable fog. (laughs) And I I just love that this is all about waiting for a book that when it gets there, he'll be excited because he's finally acquired it, but then he'll go put it on his his shelf, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, but he talks about finding it and being able to sit down and read it too. Um, Again, I know it's a slight cheat, but art forum, like I say, is a real, is a real thing out there. And I thought this just really captures so much of that excitement about a new book coming, you know, whether it's coming in the mail or whether you're waiting for it to be published by your favorite author, And that, you know, sometimes it does live up to the moment. Um, Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, I've had this happen so much where the book finally arrives that I've been so excited about. And I might read it two years later. (laughs) 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 So anyway, um, I love Ira in general. And uh, this was one of my favorite of his books. And again, always will have a soft place in my heart because these are the conversations I think you must be having with yourself, Paul. Again, when you're waiting for those books to arrive and you're posting fun things on Twitter about, you know, it not be, you know, the empty mailbox, like Charlie Brown or something like that. Right. Walking <laughs> back down with your head hanging down. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the walk back is always much longer than the walk
1: to the <laughs> That's why you need to have the British just keep the hole in the front door. You don't have to go anywhere. Yeah, it comes that's right. Right. <laughs>
0: and, and that's such an interesting sensation of, it's never going to arrive. As a <laughs> <laughs> when
2: you see people like on Twitter, you know, with all the, you know, whether it's been pandemic related or how there's been mail delays in the U S mm-hmm. and I don't know, you know, international, Dang but in. yeah. People that are just like, you know, it should have been here by now. It should have been here by now. And it's, <laughs> it's funny. It's definitely a universal feeling. But then, like you said, some of the books that I, you know, charged down to the mailbox for they're sitting there on my TBR pile and, I'm sure I'll get to them eventually <laughs> <laughs> I've,
1: I've had I won't, I won't name the publisher or the book for I don't want to upset them but uh, I ordered a book directly from an independent publisher a while ago and have been having emails back and forth to them over the past four months whilst I wait for it to arrive oh. <laughs> but, it, but it has now come so I need to uh, <laughs> I feel like I've exhausted so much energy on it already that actually picking it up to read it might <laughs> tip might me a few <laughs> well I guess but there's this is the part right
0: acquiring the book you know there's the different joy of buying and exactly. getting the book versus sitting down and reading it. So maybe one that's always there now, like whenever you get the wild hair and you want to do it. Yeah. All right, Simon, we can go back to you for your next one.
1: Great, yeah, so I've gone for a, a book only who has been republished by NR, um, NYRB as well as my copy, which is Farago, which is Angel by Elizabeth Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you guys like Elizabeth Taylor. So um, it's quite it's quite different from all her other novels. Uh, it's, um, But it's also often the one that people start with and I think for a long time was the most famous one that, that might no longer be the case. Uh, Angel is the name of the main character, Angel Deverell, who is maybe Lucy based on Mary Corelli or authors like that sort of potboiler people from the late Victorian early Edwardian period who are phenomenally successful and extremely disparaged and what um an angel is one of those people she she loves writing she's extremely self-confident uh she writes trash but it does incredibly well she's very popular both amongst those people who read her without any irony and with the upper classes who love to mock it and swap it with each other and read out passages they think are the worst written. Um, she becomes very wealthy off the back of this. I think what makes it such an interesting uh, a novel is the commitment Taylor has to making Angel a despicable person. who <laughs> She's just completely devoid of empathy for anybody else, completely devoid of any sense of self-criticism or belief that she might not be brilliant. Uh, and... She gets everything she wants, I guess, but then discovers maybe she didn't want it exactly like that. Uh, As far as I can recall, there aren't actually significant passages quoted from her successful books. I could be wrong about that. But I thought I'd just read this, which is where um, the publishers who eventually do decide to publish her first novel, one of them uh, spoofs the book. So Gilbert and Brace had been divided as their readers' reports had been. Willie Brace had worn his guts thin with laughing, he said. The Lady Urania was his favorite party piece and he mocked at his partner's defense of it in his own version of Angel's language. Kindly raise your coruscating beard from those iridescent pages of shimmering tosh and permit your mordant thoughts to dwell for one mordant moment on us perishing in the coruscating workhouse, which is where we shall without a doubt find ourselves among the so-called denizens of defraught penury Ask yourself, nay, go so far as to inquire of yourself. How do we stand by such brilliant boulder Dash and live? Nay, not only live, but exist too. You overdo these nays, said Theo Galbraith. She does not. There's a nay on every page. My wife counted them. She took the even pages, I the odd. We were to pay a shilling to the other for each of our pages where there wasn't one and not a piece of silver changed hands from first to last. So yeah, Taylor's having great fun at people like Mary Corelli. I've never read any Mary Corelli, so I don't mm-hmm. know how accurate it is. But your mention of Dan Brown <laughs> does that's <does laughs> chime that such things have, have not faded away. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm so glad you picked that one. I again I can't believe I didn't think of that one. That's the first Elizabeth Taylor I read, and I I love that. That book has a very soft spot in my heart too. Um so well done, so funny, but also mm-hmm. what a fascinating character. Like you said, I like how she doesn't try to make her especially appealing. And yet, I don't know, you're drawn to her in weird ways too. I don't know, that's, yeah. Yeah, really I
1: feel like the end, you are definitely, you want good things for her, even if mm-hmm. <laughs> she has not many redeeming qualities. Right. Have you well, read that one, Trevor? I have, yeah. I love Elizabeth Taylor. She seems to be, have a book
0: that could pop up on almost any of our lists, because I yeah. didn't I bring her up last week? Um, yeah, I did, even with the Jane Austen episode, just because of the way that she... Um, has that similar plot of, of in Palladian of a, a young woman who mm-hmm. is kind of ruined by the book she read <laughs> as a youth and wants to live out that life um, when she goes to, to work as a governess for, you know, a family and thinks, well, it's just a matter of time before the, the husband falls in love with me and things like, I mean, she just seems to have these all these various different types of plots and stories. And um, we need to do an episode that's devoted to her someday. Oh, you um, do, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I I love Elizabeth Taylor. Um, Paul, which was the the first one you read?
1: I was just intrigued. to which, because Angel was my first Taylor as well. But where where did you start, Trevor?
0: I think A Wreath of Roses Mm. uh, was the first one that I read, and that train scene at the beginning made me a a big fan immediately. Like I, I have a thing on my blog called the Pantheon. Like authors, I know I'm going to read everything that they. Mm. You know, presuming I live long enough. But you know, these are the authors I want to read whatever they wrote. And I think I put her on there before I'd even finished a <laughs> mm-hmm. Um And I, and I have never looked back as I've gone through, I haven't read them all yet, but I'm, you know, closing in on that milestone and that never has there been one where I've been thinking, Oh dang, that was a, that was a dud. <laughs> <laughs> Palladium's the- probably my least favorite, but I, even that I, you know, I still remember really well and, and think about quite often. She's one of those where I do that silly thing where I love the two that I've read so
2: much that I'm like slowing down <laughs> and I'm afraid, but it's like, it's just not a smart thing to do. So I, I think I she's to... got 10. So you should I know.
0: Keep, keep going for a bit and then slow down when you only have two left. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I need,
1: yeah, to, yeah. Up the, I need
2: to up the pace a little bit here.
1: I once went to, um, I once went to a day of talks about her, uh, which it featured, um, various people who'd known her, including Elizabeth Jane Howard, who who turned up quite late uh, to the panel she was meant to talk on. And she she went down in her motorised wheelchair down to the front and knocked over a lectern. But, uh, and, then, and then she started talking about Elizabeth Taylor and her family and, and said some quite disparaging things about her children. Obviously not realizing that her children were also on the panel oh, <laughs> recognize and I was thinking Elizabeth Taylor would love this this so is definitely <laughs> have gone on one of her books straight away. It was wonderful That's funny <laughs> oh, that is
0: funny <laughs> All right um, let's see Paul uh, what's your next one? So my next one
2: might be able to be considered a, a bit of a cheat kind of like your last one but um, <laughs> it's drifts by Kate Zambrino. And the reason I say it might be a little bit of a cheat is I read it the first time, and I think I got about three quarters of the way through thinking it was just a memoir. Um, And so, you know, it's one of those books that we keep talking about that kind of defy categorization a little bit, I think. Um, A lot of people describe it as autofiction. I I guess Zambrino herself talks about something called the "eye novel, which I guess is a literary genre in Japanese literature. And it's kind of confessional literature where the events correspond to the author's life, but it's fictionalized. So I'm walking the tightrope here a little bit, you know, it's it's on, on the line, but um, yeah. So the the narrator of the book is someone named Kate who is writing a book called drifts. So there's Mm. some more of our meta uh, (laughs) for, um, but yeah, so she's really struggling with writer's block and she's finding it very difficult to focus. Um, You know, she's, distracted throughout the day by her dog or different events in the neighborhood or the internet. She finds herself, you know, Googling things or, ch- or checking her inbox. She says like an Oracle to remind myself that I still exist. <laughs> um, and then it, so there's that aspect of it, but then she really sprinkles in it's very fragmentary. There's lots of diary entries and biographical sketches of other authors, lots of digressions. And she even has photos kind of scattered in. It's kind of like Zabald where there'll be like photos stuck into the text. Um, so yeah, one of the things I like so much about it is it is just crammed full of references to other books and, and authors. She talks a lot about Rilke and some of his own struggles while he was writing his one novel. And she'll kind of draw parallels between her experience right now and his. Um, but yeah, I was, I was trying to jot down just some of the, the books and authors that came up and I won't read all of them cause it would take half the episode, but Bolaño, Sontag, Elizabeth Hardwick, Kafka, Thomas Mann. Clarice Lispector, Sebald, Valser. um, You know, it goes on and on. She even talks about Caesar Ira. So I was thinking between the Valser and the Ira, Trevor, if you haven't read this one, I think you would love it. I need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely a book for book lovers. You know, it's one of those, like I was referencing earlier, where you want to have a a pen and paper handy to just be jotting down all these, all these (laughs) books. And I really do like, I, I don't know. It's very fragmentary and there's not a lot of, narrative flow. I mean, overall there is, but it it drops in and out a lot. So I think some readers might find it frustrating, but I find myself really enjoying these types of books lately. Um, So I'll just read a couple of real quick excerpts here. Um, She says, for some time, I've been interested in the writing one is doing when one is not writing. I email often throughout the day with Anna, a more successful writer living in a different city. We've both been under contract for our respective novels for several years. Art is time, Anna writes me a novel especially. It must be slow. It must take the time it needs. All that summer, I attempt time. I try not to let the days bleed. I attempt to be in the room, outside of the internet. That summer, along with my daily black journals that accumulate in rows like gravestones, I begin keeping a notebook that I think of as the Drift's notebook. It, its cover a canary yellow that matches my, cup, my copy of Valser's The Tanners, which I read in short increments each season, never finishing. So, you know, that gives you a little idea of it. And then um, there's one more section. She'll talk a lot about, you know, a lot of writing is not the actual art of writing. It's, it's the sitting there and thinking. And it, to an outsider, it might look like you're not even doing anything, but that's a big part of the act of writing. And so she says, but I am working, taking notes and thinking, not just laziness, I've decided, but what Blanchot calls De Sauvremont, translated variously as inoperativeness, inertia, idleness, unworking, or my favorite, worklessness, a spiritual stance, more active, like decreation, the state where the writing of the fragment replaces the work. Kafka filling up notebook after notebook on his lap, sorry, filling up notebook after notebook at night, sitting in the living room, blanket on his lap, having to cover his cage of canaries until they quiet, everyone else in the family asleep. In his notebook, he complains about the factory, Felice, his family, and later about how much time the publishing of his first book takes away from his potential literary powers. So I don't know, just stuff like that. I, I really like it. It is it is about writing and about books, but it's also about you know the act of creation, the messiness of creation, sometimes the frustration. Um, and then what's interesting is about two thirds through the novel, the narrator becomes pregnant. And so it becomes more about her body, the changes she's going through, but it's obviously a different act of creation that comes with lots of its own troubles and aches and pains and excitements and things like that. So yeah, I don't know. I I really love this book. I know quite a few of our friends on Twitter and elsewhere have um, loved Zambrino's work, and I think that's how I first heard about it. So I may be preaching to the choir here, but for anybody who hasn't read this one, I would highly recommend it.
0: I remember you bringing that up when you were reading it before mm-hmm. sometime last year.
2: Yeah. And actually, I was planning on just going off of that. But then as I started dipping in and out over the last week, I ended up, I just read it again so it's like i said it's so fragmentary that it doesn't really feel like hard work it's just you can dip in and out and it lends itself to that type of of reading even though the topics themselves are are pretty heavy
0: well i'm going to keep the meta theme going here for a little bit this was unintentional this really was the next book i was going to bring up um it's philip roth's zuckerman unbound so the zuckerman character in roth's work they're 10 books that Roth wrote about Zuckerman or had Zuckerman as a character. Um, Sometimes Zuckerman is actually narrating someone else's story. He's like the author in there, but Zuckerman's kind of a Roth stand in to an extent. I mean, Roth uses him to fictionalize some of his own autobiography and explore some of those things in that meta uh, way. And in this book, this is the second book in the series after the Ghost Rider, which I love. It's probably my favorite of, of Roth's works period um, where Zuckerman is still a young writer just learning you know he goes to visit one of his um, idols, you know' one of the, one of the authors that he that he loves and, and oh, it's just weird. I mean he, he thinks that Anne Frank is is the author's you know, someone who lives there with the author. It's just, it's so interesting and weird. That's the ghostwriter. In Zuckerman Unbound, this uh, Zuckerman has now become a successful writer. And he's written a very famous book that everybody knows him by. And he is both, um, you know, heroic to some, and also despised by many others. And the book is called Karnofsky. You know, Playing with the the Karn there is part of the the word because it's a stand-in for Roth's own Portnoy's Complaint, which is his famous um, book about his coming of age, or at least as this, this Jewish boy's coming of age that is so you know raunchy and 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 literary <laughs> in in all that way. Well, this is Zuckerman's um, Portnoy's Complaint. This is Karnowsky and so it's a fictional book, but it, it, you know as you're reading it, it's just this this weird uh, world of, of books and of fiction and of this author trying to deal with the others who are now coming to him for money or, you know, people who, because he, he wrote their story, think that they're really close to him when they just pass him on the street, they cost him and, you know, want to, want to become his, his friend as, as, as surely as he is, you know, big in their mind. He, they think they he must, they must be big in his um, but it's also about someone who's growing up with books. <clears throat> and here's a here's a spot. Um, he is he's moving his books his his library to somewhere else. He says carrying his books from one life into the next was nothing new to Zuckerman. He had left his family for Chicago in 1949, carrying in his suitcase the annotated works of Thomas Wolfe and Rogette Thesaurus. Again, that this is very much a Roth, you know, stand-in. Uh, four years later, age twenty, he left Chicago with five cartons of classics, bought secondhand out of his spending money to be stored in his parents' attic while he served two years in the army in nineteen sixty when he was divorced from betsy there were three there were thirty cartons to be packed from his shell, from the shelves, no longer his in nineteen sixty five when he was divorced from Virginia, there were just under sixty to cart away in nineteen sixty nine He left Bank Street with eighty-one boxes of books. <laughs> sounds familiar so not only just the the idea of karnofsky being the book that's within this book that this book is all about um you know this is still a literary person not someone i would be a friend with i've always you know realized that that you know roth's works fascinate me but i'm pretty sure roth would despise me and i don't think that i would have very fond uh, regards to him if we had to hang out or have dinner together at any time but i still find it pretty fascinating and interesting. And this was a big book for me as I was, you know, younger trying to, um, you know, and and it just, again, opened up so many other other things. And um, the Zuckerman books, I I love them. You know, I love I love this whole series. It gets on with the America trilogy with American American Pastoral, for example, in there. And um, yeah, just interesting, pretty, pretty good and uh, great stuff in here. From an exceptionally problematic author, <laughs> so. right? No, he definitely is, but you can't
2: deny that. In spite of all the problems, he, yeah. When I've read those, I mean, he's he's a great writer too. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a great person, but a great writer. And yeah, I've I've read probably four or five of the Zuckerman books. Okay, and I especially love American Pastoral and The Counter Life. Those two in particular yeah. are great. But I need to go back and explore more of his stuff soon, Simon phil broth.
1: I I've not read a word of it, Ralph. I think I've yeah, I I've never quite got past the problematic personality. Mm-hmm. But to be ex- not that I'm against necessarily reading books by people that I don't think I'd like. But when when they're sort of big white men of American literature, I think I'm, yeah. I'm already uh, fairly supposed <laughs> to not want to read them. So For I think sure. it pushed me yeah. to
0: the edge. Yeah, this yeah. is like a a book on this list that I I wouldn't necessarily recommend unless it sounds like exactly your thing. You know because. Um, I have a I have issues with him, and right. they, they were compounded, you know, so much last year by the debacle of Blake Bailey's mm-hmm. biography coming out. I was Paul mm-hmm. and I were talking about that. You know, I was so excited to read that Blake Bailey had been someone I'd known on Twitter for a good decade, and mm-hmm. you know, we'd kind of gone back and forth with things. I was excited when he was chosen to to write the biography, and just oh man, that I still feel just sickened by, by what happened, not to Me him, too. but because of him. Mm-hmm. Um, so at any rate, let's move on to something maybe more pleasant. <laughs> uh,
1: um, didn't expect it to go that. Direction, <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> cool. Um, so yeah, I would be remiss in my attempts to, to, um, promote the British Library Women Writers Series if I didn't pick a book that was in it for for one of my books. (laughs) So (laughs) I've chosen Keeping Up Appearances by Rose Macaulay, which Mm. was uh, published in 1920s. She's probably best remembered now for The Towers of Trebizond*, which is her, her final novel, All the World, My Wilderness, which was around the same time, I think in the 50s. But in the 20s, she wrote lots of I think maybe nine books throughout the 1920s and these comic novels that often deal with different vague reads of society at the time Um, and Keeping Up Appearances is about uh, Daphne and Daisy who move around in the same circles but one of them is a bit older and from a lower class background than the other one Um, and it's very hard to talk about this novel without giving too much away, so I won't say too much about what happens. But it's about class. Uh, it's about um, pretences, I guess, and and keeping up appearances. But uh, Daisy is also a writer under a pseudonym, uh, Miss Marjorie Wynn, and she writes um, books that. They're not quite angel devil level, but they are not thought well of, or indeed they're not even acknowledged as existing by the highbrow community in which she moves around with Daphne. Uh they're, they're sort of beneath their notice. Um and uh yeah, so a lot of it is about how people the same people can be seen very differently from different perspectives. So uh, there's a quote saying, um, mother's clever girl earning her living for, by writing for the London papers, writing such bright, clever pieces that people always like to read. One of those vulgar little journalists who write popular feminine chit chat in that kind of paper that caters for mob taste. So she's also a journalist. And those are the, the two views that people have of her. And she looks at her own books and she says, uh, she's written a novel called Summer's Over. And she's looking at it always as an outsider. Uh, they were not ill-written, they even had a certain poignancy and surely a kind of grace, less of style than of sentiment and characterization. And here and there, so Daisy thought, there was humour. This Marjorie Wynne, she was not surely on the lowest levels. There were, thought Daisy, many novelists below her. <laughs> um, and this is a the interwar period and sort of different echelons of literary taste and the, the different hierarchies of... Um, of writers is something that i found fascinating for a long time it's what i wrote quite a lot of my d fell on and there was just this uh this thing particularly at the time where if you read certain authors you automatically began to a certain belong to a certain class or to a certain uh, intellectual class and i think that doesn't exist quite so much now there are some people like dan brown where we might dismiss people but also you're equally likely to read something trashy and then something highbrow and then something in between, Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that perhaps didn't happen in the 1920s, or at least uh, wasn't believed to happen. Uh, And I think, yeah, Rose McCauley is really funny, really good at poking fun at um, social mores, the particular Britishness of of tiny class distinctions, I guess. Um, And uh, yeah, I would, obviously I'd recommend it because I I recommended it to the British library to reprint. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, have you guys read any race macaulay
0: no the trials of Trebizond is, is perpetually the next nyrb classic book i'm gonna pull from the shelf um i just i just haven't started it quite yet like i always pull it down and then i pull i'm like oh let's see what ones do i want to read well that one's always on my list and then this one and then i put it back and go with whatever the other one was so would you recommend it as a
1: another one um, or
0: or would you recommend this uh, this one today instead
1: well i i think the towers of trebizond is great it's mad it's it's a very odd book um and bits of it uh, i have not dated particularly well in terms of uh, race relations but mm-hmm. uh, i i think her 1920s stuff not not just this one but things like dangerous ages or potterism um or crew train all of which are back in print now uh, i think she's she's much more whimsical and flippant in those books, but I think still with interesting things to say. And to me, they're they're much more to my taste. I think uh, there's certainly a school of thought that would say that her later stuff is better, but uh, I disagree with them. Hmm. Interesting.
2: She's not on my radar at all. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. I always Mm -hmm. like when there's someone who, I've heard the name, of course, but I just don't know anything about her. So I'll have to do some research.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite facts about her is that she had a brother called Orly McCauley. (laughs)
0: i bet you he loved his parents
2: for that yeah yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right paul
2: let's go with your i guess final one my final one yep so i think i could be wrong but i think this might be one actually trevor that i might have discovered from your blog years and years ago Mm -hmm. you'll have to tell me if you think i'm right uh too loud a solitude by Bohemil harabo is that something that you wrote about years uh, I ago? Don't,
0: I don't know. I've definitely talked about it. I know I've talked about it with David on a on okay. a podcast. I don't know if I ever wrote about it.
2: Okay. Well, maybe it was the podcast then. But yeah, this is... Uh, oh, I love this book. My wife bought this one for me. I was looking in the front cover and we wrote down... She bought it for me as a Christmas gift back in 2009. And I remember sitting there by the Christmas tree, just reading it immediately. It's like 97 pages. And I read it that day, I think. And I've since <laughs> read it a couple more times just because... It is short, but also it's just so compelling. It's uh, narrated in the first person by the main character, a man named Hanta. And he has been compacting trash for 35 years. And he works in this underground little basement area um, that just every day kind of steadily fills up with waste paper and trash that's poured down through this hole from up above. Um, And it turns out that often that trash includes banned books and different art prints and things like that that are poured in from above so you know the vast majority of them are destroyed by him you know he he puts them in the compactor and and crushes them and they they go on their way but we also come to learn that he saves and preserves many of them as well Um, so you know he's portrayed as kind of a, a odd little hermit and he's an alcoholic and not formerly educated But it's kind of fascinating because through all of his years of doing this, you realize he has really read a lot of these books and he will drop in all this knowledge and these obscure references that you wouldn't necessarily associate with somebody that you, you know, that the way he's portrayed. So um, I'll start just reading a little bit from the very beginning. It says, for 35 years now, I've been in waste paper and it's my love story. (laughs) For 35 years, I've been compacting waste paper and books, smearing myself with letters until I've come to look like my encyclopedias and a good three tons of them I've compacted over the years. I am a jug filled with water, both magic and plain. I have only to lean over, and a stream of beautiful thoughts flows out of me. My education has been so unwitting, I can't quite tell which of my thoughts come from me, and which from my books, but that's how I've stayed attuned to myself and the world around me for the past 35 years. Because when I read, I don't really read. I pop a beautiful sentence into my mouth and suck it like a fruit drop or I sip it like a liqueur until the thought dissolves in me like alcohol, infusing brain and heart and coursing on through the veins to the root of each blood vessel. Like, Oh, I think that might be like one of my favorite quotes ever about reading. So good. I know so good. So, you know, like I said, one of the, my favorite details about this is that he often works really slowly which he gets in trouble with his boss. But the reason he's doing that is because he is picking out the stuff that he wants, but also he'll carefully arrange items that he's about to crush into these bales and he'll arrange it so that works of art are on the outside of the bales. So it's almost like he's creating these little works of art, even though he's in the act of destroying art. So I don't know, I really like that part. And then, you know, so the whole thing is sprinkled with lots of wonderful quotes about reading and and books and art. Um, But there's a section, one more that I'll read that might sound familiar to to us and to some of the listeners out there about when he's coming home from from work. And he says, I go home walking the street silently and in deep meditation, passing trams and cars and pedestrians in a cloud of books. The books I found that day and am carrying home in my briefcase. Lost in my dreams, I somehow cross at the traffic signals, never bumping into street lamps or people, yet moving onward, exuding fumes of beer and grime, yet smiling because my briefcase is full of books. And that very night, I expect them to tell me things about myself I don't know. On I go through the noisy streets, never crossing at the red. I walk subconsciously, unconscious, half asleep, subliminally inspired with every bale I've compacted that day fading softly and quietly inside me. And then there's, sorry, just one more little piece that I want to read about when he gets home because his house is just full of books. For 35 years now, I've been throwing each bale into a high-stress situation, crossing off every year, every month, every day in the month, until we both retire, my press and I. I've been bringing home books every evening in my briefcase, and my my two-floor apartment is all books. What with the cellar and the shed long since packed, and the kitchen, pantry, and even bathroom full, the only space free is a path to the window and stove. Even the bathroom has only room enough for me to sit down in. Just above the toilet bowl, about five feet off the floor, I have a whole series of shelves, planks piled high to the ceiling, holding over a thousand pounds of books. And one careless roost, one careless rise, one brush with a shelf, and half a ton of books would come tumbling down on me, catching me with my pants down. (laughs) And when there was no room for even a single addition, I pushed my twin beds together and rigged a kind of canopy of planks over them, ceiling high for the two additional tons of books I've carried home over the years. (laughs) And when I fall asleep, I've got all those books weighing down on me like a two-ton nightmare. So oh I don't know. Gosh. I just yeah. It makes That's us feel so better funny. about ourselves, right? We don't have any books. <laughs> <laughs> but that that part is also really fascinating because he has this feeling of guilt because he's basically murdered or crushed so many of these books over the years that he kind of has this paranoia that someday all the books are going to have their revenge on him and kind of cascade <laughs> down on him and and take him out. So. Yeah, that book. I mean, it's just like I said, it's so slim. But when you think about how much is contained in there, it's it's pretty amazing. Just, you know, Mm -hmm. clearly, when you get some of the historical context of him as a Czech writer at that time, you know, there's a lot about um, censorship and the role that he's playing, but also he's helping to preserve literature. And so it's, you know, the ephemerality of of literature, but also the long lasting nature of art. And, you know, it's one of my favorite books. So that one's great.
0: Well, and is this the Harker edition? Mm-hmm. Um the thing that I like about it that just seemed to fit <laughs> is that down here there's a little illustration on the cover of a man putting a book into a book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so way to go, Paul. Way to stick okay. to it today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you. Oh, all right. Well I will I will wrap us up here with um one that I love. This this was definitely my favorite on my list. It is Edwin Mulhouse, The Life and Death of an American Writer, 1943 to 1954, by Jeffrey Cartwright, by Stephen Milhauser. (laughs) It is a complicated title. So this is Stephen Milhauser's book, but the, the title of the book is Edwin Mulhouse, the Life and Death of an American Writer, 1943 to1954 by Jeffrey Cartwright. So, so Edward Mulhouse is a, is a fictional character. Jeffrey Cartwright, the author of this biography of you know someone who clearly from the title um, was 11 years old when he died and was a, an American writer, is fictional. And the person who's writing the book we're reading is also another character in it who has come across this biography, and is intrigued about what he has found because Edwin Mulhouse is portrayed in this biography. That's also by a child, Jeffrey Cartwright. Is a child. He's one of Edwin Mulhouse's contemporaries. Um, he's like Boswell. He is. He is going around and and writing about this great artist's works. And this biography is talking about Edwin Mulhouse's brilliant novel cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> which, which we don't get a whole lot about, but we are reading Jeffrey Cartwright's biography and it is absolutely brilliant. You know, the writing is, is not a kid's writing clearly, but in you know, you got to give Stephen Milhauser the, the uh, disbelief, you know, the uh, suspension of disbelief here. Um, it is fascinating book and it is fascinatingly um, fun while also being really dark, um, our author, who stumbled upon this biography, is 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 intrigued by Jeffrey Cartwright as Jeffrey Cartwright is intrigued by Edwin Mulhouse. And there's something dark that was on, going on in that relationship. Jeffrey Cartwright's biography is laudatory of Edwin Mulhouse while also predatory. And, um, you know, it, it's just a fascinating, weird... Book by one of my favorite authors, Stephen Milhauser. Unfortunately, um, my uh, my my blog where I put posted my review um, and put the quotes I was going to read um, from it it appears to be down, so I'm not going to read anything from it. But just imagine this very you know well written uh, you know florid Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, prose of this Jeffrey Cartwright as he writes about his friend. Edwin Mulhouse and how brilliant um this kid, you know, the genius American writer. Um but I didn't know very much about this book going into it. I'd rather their Milhauser books and people had said, Oh, this is his best and man, I tend to agree, it is fascinating and weird and fun. And I think Milhauser is just a, a genius, so Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that one. I love
2: that book. That book has some of the strongest writing about childhood, Mm -hmm. just the way that like through a child's lens. And like you said, a lot of times it'll be through a child's lens with an extra twist. I mean, there's a knowingness that is not childlike, but some of the scenes in particular of of when they're going to school or like in one of the kids' bedrooms and stuff like have stuck with me. I think he Mm -hmm. is an absolutely amazing writer. I think he's obviously best known for a lot of his short stories, but just the way his mind works, he is such an interesting guy. And to see him be able to carry that out for an entire novel was a great surprise for me because you never know when somebody who is kind of a short story specialist expands. I don't know the timing of when
0: this one came out compared to a lot of his stories. I think in, was this one 1972? I mean, it's a it. this was one of his, his oldest. Yeah. So maybe um, that
2: was it. Yeah, maybe it did come out before a lot of his short stories, but anyway, just the way his mind works, the way he delves into imagination and magic and all these different things—he's mm-hmm. he's a great writer. I'm, I love that book.
0: Yeah, this is this is his first work. It's 1972, oh, wow. and then he wrote Portrait of a Romantic in 77, and it's only in the 80s that we start getting collections oh, like, in the Penny Arcade um, about his, you know, his short story collections, but. He definitely went more to the short story side. He's only written four novels, one of which yeah. won the Pulitzer, the Martin Dressler, which I also right. I love that one too. Um, but but man, I've got I've got all of his short story collections mm-hmm. over here on the shelf, and I I love digging into them. They're yeah. just they're just fun. Is that um, I don't? He's not even very well known here, Simon. I mean, he won the Pulitzer, but I think he's one that people don't would never like. Even people who follow books don't probably register who he is or that he won um yeah i have have, i've not
1: heard of him but uh i I wouldn't like to speak on behalf of everyone here i guess uh, so nobody (laughs) in the uk knows um i mean yes if he was writing after 1950 there's a strong chance that i haven't heard of him Uh, and it's we've, not so and that, much
2: geographical as yeah. it is.
1: Though, <laughs> we've you know, now finished the episode with me having read none of the six books that you've recommended. So lots of lots of new recommendations for me. Well, and this one it just strikes me as is it's his
0: 50th anniversary, 1972. Mm-hmm. You know? So there we go.
2: Wow, I can't but, believe that was
0: his first book. That's stunning. Like what what a way to come out. Yeah, what a risky way. Yeah. You know, <laughs> because it's so weird. It and but but it is it is quite a beautiful a beautiful book all right well paul and simon that was a lot of fun i i love talking you know about books in general but it, you know there's an added pleasure i guess when we're talking about books that are about books <laughs> compounding yeah. the the joy in that <laughs> and paul always a pleasure simon always a pleasure as well and i'm just delighted that you you um uh, said yes when we asked if you'd like to join us thank you so much
1: oh thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed it
0: I Hope you'll so. come back sometime.
1: You know, oh, I mean, anytime, anytime.
0: We've, we've got that Elizabeth Taylor thing in the, you know, in the back of our mind. Yeah, I'll be back any...
1: for that and the Philip Ruffa episode. Obviously, you Yes, yes, so. we. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, well, listeners, uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks uh, with another episode. Um, we've got something fun in store for that one. That will will affect a future episode too. We'll just leave you with that little teaser, I guess. But always, a, always nice to. To hear from you, please let us know your thoughts on books about books, and we will share, um, we'll share some of them hopefully in the future. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks. Thank you
2: for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon, If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.